And so what we're doing is sucking functionality up into the application world, up into content, up into service. All the money, all the investment, all, all the buzz is actually up at layer seven, up at the application layer. And in so doing, we've commoditized all of those lower layers. We've commoditized the addressing layer, commoditized the routing layer. We've commoditized a huge amount of networking because in the public network, it's just data center, access network, user. And with end-to-end encryption, like Quick, mm-hmm. and with end-to-end sort of transport embedded in Quick, then what you actually find is, well, it's just applications, isn't it? Well, what about everything else? Well, they don't matter. They just don't matter anymore. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I discuss two topics we've touched on before. One is the death of transit, the shift in relative importance of routing to reach places versus the role of content distribution networks close to us all as consumers. The other topic is the changing roles of routing of the DNS, and in particular, the role of the DNS in steering traffic to an optimal source, usually close to you as a consumer. The combination of these two things creates an almost n-squared outcome, where the impact on decisions about how internet traffic flows and in whose benefit is increasingly concentrated in the hands of a few organizations. Jeff, welcome back. What shall we talk about this week? Well, you know, some time ago, I remember this television series, and I hesitate to say that I watched it because I don't think I did, but I did like the title. Orange is the new black. And this whole idea of A is the new B kind of struck with me. And I was listening to, in fact, I was at Osnog earlier in the year, the Australian Network Operators Group, and heard this fascinating talk by uh, Tom Pasaka of Cloudflare that made me think. And his talk was DNS is the new BGP. Wait, <laughs> wait, hang on. <laughs> and it kind of made me think. And it's kind of, You know, I think he's right. But let's kind of put the pieces together and understand why these days we don't steer traffic with BGP. We just don't. DNS is the protocol for the internet, all of the internet. You're scaring me. And BGP is just marginalised. I'm like, who gives a stuff about BGP security when you just don't use it? It's, oh, now you've awful. you've started two or three different ideas there at once, <laughs> Jeff. Maybe let's take these one at a time. Wandering around with jet fuel and lighter. Yeah, okay. Yep. So what's been going on? We're living in a bizarre world in technology. We're living at the culmination of, geez, 40-odd years of Moore's Law. And Moore's law, I think we've talked about this in the past. Is we have, yes. Prodigious. When when everything doubles within you know, a year or 18 months, any business plan has about a three-year lifetime. Everything just gets bigger almost automatically, bigger and cheaper. And, and so 
This has affected every part of the IT industry. Our computers got smaller and more powerful. They had more memory. They could process more gunk. And the cost of doing so just plummeted. So if you think about what the telephone company was, say, 50 years ago, it was a rationing company. You couldn't just pick up the phone and dial somewhere else on the other part of the globe and leave the call open as kind of an open chat line because the world didn't have enough phone capacity for everyone to do that. You couldn't, in some countries, even leave your local voice call open around the city for an unlimited amount of time. If you lived in the UK, absolutely not. Local calls were timed from day one. And I remember my mother pointing this out firmly, that my protracted phone calls to friends was costing money, when in America, and I believe Australia, you had at least some horizon of untimed local call. We never had that in the UK. Never. Well, Indonesia, they had three-minute local calls, and at the end of three minutes, a relay clicked in and the phone dropped out. They really were three-minute calls. I also remember my mother telling me that for international phone calls for quite a long time in her life, you had to book them weeks in advance. So here we are, rationing scarcity. And the entire business of telecommunications and computing, oddly enough, was actually all about rationing scarcity. And, And it's only been in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years that the tables have not just turned, but completely switched. This isn't a world of scarcity. This is a world of phenomenal abundance. When the entire, and I do mean entire, Netflix catalogue is sitting on a bunch of servers in silicon somewhere in my town and an equivalent collection in your town and in the town of every single listener on this podcast, that's abundance. We've got petabytes to spare you know, because it's truly abundant. And interestingly, that has meant a switch in the way we do engineering and networking. Previously, in a world of scarcity, the user was brought across to the server, the data center, where the data was. So if you're Microsoft and all your data center was in Seattle, then Seattle was surrounded by, you know, a forest of fiber wires and the world came and knocked on Seattle's door, which was kind of bizarre, but it matched the economics of the day. Well, the idea of taking everything that was in Seattle and somehow putting it everywhere else in the world, you couldn't afford to do that. It's insanely expensive. Think of the number of computers. (laughs) That's right. Think Think of whatever it is. But, you know, these days... That's not the cost element anymore. Replication is cheap. And and the funny thing is there's only one invariant in, in communications. Even though the unit price has dropped, distance equals cost. So to move data across your local area network at, I don't know, 10 gigabits a second costs you a squintillionth of a cent per gigabyte of data that you move. Do the same thing around the world and you will pay appreciably more. The unit numbers may have changed over the years, but the relative difference in price hasn't actually changed. It is more expensive if you go longer distance. So what I see emerging from this is that when we were in times past and the storage costs of 
all the information, services, compute functions we might want, compute and storage, was really significantly high. Even though the cost in distance terms was high, the cost of replicating was just too much. And so you had to wear the distance cost to go to the center to get to talk to the thing you needed. But I think you're about to say a consequence of Moore's law is that we flipped the model. Well, of course, at the time, and again, the reason why we persisted with this longer than we should, was that Microsoft wasn't paying for you to come to knock on their door. But if Microsoft had set up 100 data service centres, they were paying. So yeah. while overall it might have been more efficient to replicate and duplicate Microsoft service, Microsoft would pay more and, and users would pay less, but Microsoft was not the winner. So we persisted with this model for some time till eventually the differences became overwhelming. The cost in communications kind of dropped far enough and the cost in storage dropped so far, and it really did drop, that replicating data centres was not a hideously expensive thing. It actually became quite cheap. In, in the scheme of things, it was easier for Facebook to send up a data center on the East Coast, a data center on the West Coast of America, a data center in Europe, a data center in Europe, and so on and so forth. And so we started to get around to what I, I called at the time the death of transit, that we got into a new regime of replicating data sources and services close to where there were users because for the users, the service was way faster way faster. And the total cost, even to the service provider who was paying to replicate, was still slow enough, low enough, that it made sense. So I remember from long, long ago, conversations about the cost of running network services in Australia. You made an observation to the community at that stage, the people in the local routing and provisioning community, something like 75% of everything we did in Australian networks ultimately had to be delivered from offshore. It was a massive ratio of information coming over the long haul link. And it sounds like you're saying we've actually completely inverted that model. If I remember this right, in the death of transit, you said it's well north of 75% of content now comes local. It could be as high as 95% with video streamers, you know, with the rise of YouTube and Facebook and all that kind of video work together with the traditional sort of film streamers. Yeah, the number is variously quoted at between 90 and 95% of all traffic by volume is not just domestic, it's hyper-local. It's in a data centre really close to you, wherever you might be, if you live in a populous area. You know, if you live with a lot of other people, it's local. So it's close, which means it's cheap to get. It's close, which means it's quick to get. It's close, which means the opportunities for congestion and packet loss, all of those problems are significantly less. I like this quality, Jeff. As a consumer, this is something I want. Okay, so now let's go back to protocol land. Hi, I want to watch Jeff's video service. Good. Well, the first thing I need to do is ask the DNS for the IP address of Jeff's video service. Hi, DNS. What IP address? Jeff'sVideoService.com. Give me, I don't know, some V4, some V6. Give me addresses, DNS. Ah, but what she really wanted was 
Jeff's video service as presented close to where you live. So it's like the Google Maps thing near me. Give me Jeff's video service near me. me. So there's a couple of ways of doing this. And various providers of this kind of content hosting have gone down either path. Even other providers, such as the root service of the DNS, have gone down one of these paths. And the first path almost seems to be antithetical. It's weird. It's an abuse. But it works. And this is a system called Anycast. You see, my phone if you can remember those things, had a unique phone number, quaint but true. And every other phone on the planet, all 600 million of them, each had their own unique number. Yeah. And so when you dialed my number, my phone rang and nobody else's. But there was a model, even then, that transformed that address into what we called an Anycast address. A group of phones would always respond to the same number. And instead of one phone ringing, 20 phones might ring, a predetermined group that happened to sort of respond to that address. Or or there was the model of triple zero, which was picked up by the closest that could handle that service. Oh, now, George, you're getting way ahead of me, way too fast, way too complicated, because we're actually just talking about simple Anycast. You know, let's just take a service and put it on an address and put that address in lots of places. Now we get to the triple zero thing. You actually don't want to get in touch with all of the servers. You want to get in touch with the closest one. I don't want some guy picking up triple zero from halfway across the country. I want it as close to me as possible. So this is where routing actually came in. Because in the job of routing, if I have two ways to get to somewhere, I don't present you with both. I actually coloured out and give you what I call the best path. So routing always selects what it thinks is the best or shortest path and gives you one. So if I inject into the routing system 20 routes for this address, 192.0.2.1, for example, then if you listen to the routing system where you are, you will only see one path to get to that address. And the routing system would actually ensure that that path that you see is the one that represents the closest instance of that addressed service. Using close in whatever terms it's got to build up a sense of distance. Because the one thing routing doesn't really know is the real physical distance, but it's got a model, a model of closeness. Right, it's got a model. It's it's not quite miles. It's not quite delay. It's none of those, but it's sort of intuitively obvious that the further away something is in terms of some metric of further away, the cost will be higher. And if we consider someone hypothetically in Bangalore asking exactly the same question to exactly the same routing model, they're going to find the closest instance to them. The routing system will deliver them a different answer of the path to get to that instance, and it will reflect something that's close to them. So you kind of get natural selection. So going back to this Jeff's video model, in this world, if Jeff can arrange to have five or six copies, one on each continent, then there should be a way for me to say, get me the closest Jeff's video 
And the routing system says, yep, I know how to do that. But you don't have to say closest. You just say Jeff's video and it gets you. I don't even need to know that it's any cast. I just say, as I normally did, get me Jeff's video. And interestingly, it'll send me back an IP address as if Jeff's video was in one location because all of these locations share the same address. But when I send a packet to that address, the routing system has said, ah, the route that I'm going to follow is the route that gives me the closest instance of Jeff's video service, not the one that's the most distant or the one that's in the middle, the closest. And that's where they differentiate in routing. So Anycast was kind of a minimal thing. You know, you didn't change much at all and you just rely on the routing system to do all the heavy lifting. And so it is no surprise that in the root zone of the DNS, when we tried to increase its capacity, instead of adding more and more and more and more separately named and numbered root servers, which was always going to be a mess, we've now managed to populate the root zone, which I think is around 1,751 separate instances. Yeah, We only use 13 unique addresses, but I believe now every single address, both V4 and V6, are now in any cast clusters. And so when you say get me the root service of the DNS, your packet will get routed to the closest instance it can find. And invariably, that's pretty damn quick. And nothing changed on my side, nothing. Yeah, no client code had to change. Nobody had to know because it was implemented through the magic of routing. Right. So far, so good. But routing is in control. Now, Jeff's video service does some damn fine Aussie movies, which are a big hit with Australians. So my Australian instance, Anycast, is under intense load, whereas the one in America, because Australians are on the nose, I'm sure, they've got to get sick of us sooner or later, is unused. And even though there might be a bit of delay penalty, I might want to sort of move some of the load across. I might want to do some engineering to say, look, Routing, um, send some of the folk to somewhere else. And routing goes, you're speaking a foreign language to me, Jeff. I can't do that. I'm sorry, Jeff. I cannot do that. <laughs> yep, I'm a one-horse model. The only model I've got is closest. I don't have second closest as a backup plan. I don't have load. I don't have alternatives, feedback, none of that. So in some ways, Anycast is brilliant, but you've got to make sure that every instance can cope with the full bananas, the complete load set that it might be uh, that it might be handled independently of all the rest. So you've got to over provision like crazy, or or I can do something a little bit different. You see, everything starts with a call to the DNS. You know, the world starts with a call to the DNS. So instead of labelling all of my servers with the same address, I actually give them unique IP addresses. Unique. You know, why would you do that, Jeff? Well, now, if I know where you are, the querier, and if I know where all my servers are, and if I know the availability and quality of each of my servers at that time, I can give you an answer, the IP address, of the server that I think will give you the best service. 
where best isn't necessarily they're just the closest. It's the closest with capacity, with you know service availability. So all of a sudden, I can actually moderate a raw, well, it's just the closest, whether it's full or not, I don't care, to, well, this is the best service we can offer. This brings a couple of things to my mind, Jeff, about the difference between decisions made forwarding packets in the routing plane and decisions made when you use the DNS. So you said up front there, if I know where you are. So how in the DNS can you know where I am because I asked you a question. That seems to me a bit of an open problem here. Well, yes, it is. Now, normally, normally, folk don't run their own DNS. It's a pain. Why would you bother? I'm like, it's just cost. Things go wrong. You don't do that. Most folk don't run their own DNS. And interestingly enough, most folk don't just go to an open DNS resolver. They really don't. Most folk don't touch the knobs and the dials. They use the resolver that their ISP has provided for them. So in the world of the DNS, there are kind of three kinds of elements. There's the resolver library in your phone, in your laptop, in your device, the stub resolver, the bit at your end. Mm -hmm. There's the resolver in the middle, what we call the recursive resolver, which is kind of built to answer stubs. And to assemble that information to answer them, the recursive resolver uses the same query protocol, the DNS, to query authoritative name servers. The people who really know the answers. People who really know the answer. Now, when a stub asks a recursive, hey, tell me an answer, the stub betrays its own IP address. A bit of information leaks out, and it has to to get the answer back. That's the source address. So the recursive certainly knows what's going on, who the end user is. And normally, though, when the recursive asks the authoritative, the authoritative says, ah, you're a member of George's ISP. George's ISP operates in lower whoop-whoop in Australia, So I will give you an answer where my geolocation database says that the IP address of the data center in back of beyond is the best data center to use when you're in whoop-whoop. And so all of the users of that ISP get given the same answer. Go and use the service in this data center. You'll be fine. Well, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound that different in outcome to the original Anycast, but you've kind of implied there's the qualitative ability to be a little more intuitive and say, wait a minute, too much is going there. I'm going to ship it somewhere else. Right, because the authoritative server is now able to answer based on, if you will, the query itself and the knowledge of the availability of the service. It can deliver an IP address back to the recursive, which kind of matches what it thinks is the best answer in terms of the service to come. So it need not necessarily just be on geographic distance, but it can also be on, you know, availability, expectations, etc. cetera, that, that sort of allow you to um, optimise the answer. So this is now steering content using the DNS. So... DNS also comes 
with a time to live. There's a bit of extra information when I get an answer that says how long I should remember what I've been told. And it occurs to me that I might want that time to live to actually be quite short, because the possibility that if I ask the question again, there's a better place to go does arise here. If I've been told for the next day and a half, go get it from this data center, but that data center goes offline, that's not necessarily a good outcome for me. So it feels like it's likely I'm giving answers that say for the next five minutes, this is where you should go. Well, you know, how long information should be cached versus how accurate you want that information is always an engineering trade-off. The longer the cache time, the faster everything operates because caches are quick. But as you say, the more the information can go out of date. The shorter the cache time, the more you're able to sort of track real-time events and give up-to-date information. But all the queries are coming back to you at the authoritative server. And depending on whether you want that or not uh, is really the juggling act here. How long you want your time to live to be in the DNS is a critical part of engineering a service, right? Now, there's another part to this that I should touch upon because when I host your service, I need to get your queries for your DNS name to give the right answer because I'm merely the platform. So how do I extract your name from your DNS zone file and point it at me and get me to be the authoritative server for that service? Hmm. So this is one of those things where I need you to look like me, but I also need to have some sense of control and ownership, but I really badly want you, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, to do and look like me and even be able to sign things on my behalf. So you could say, George, delegate this name to me. And it's kind of, yeah, okay. Expensive, unwieldy, difficult. Don't want to go there. What other form can I use to reach into your domain and extract that domain name and pop it into my domain system? And the answer, oddly enough, is this little trick called CNAME, canonical name. Because instead of saying, here's this name, Jeff's favourite service, and instead of having an an A and a quad A record in, in the DNS, I instead put a CNAME record in and say, you should consult Jeff's video service dot Jeff's CDN hoster dot net. So ask someone else, but a specific someone else. Don't ask about Jeff. Ask about Jeff in this other place. Ask about Jeff in the platform that's hosting the service and then follow that chain down. You know, fully resolve the name to an IP address that is the IP address in that hosting service. And and I'm kind of there at this point because now if if I want to host your content, I say to you, change your DNS name to be a canonical name against this name I pre-provisioned. I then have control of all the queries for that service and I can steer each of them in the DNS to the server that I want to steer them to. 
and that might change over time as I bring up more services. It, it might alter to reflect availability or load, but, you know, it kind of works. And, and these days it kind of works at a level which is getting pretty spooky because they introduced one more trick and that one more trick has been the one that's made this from good to a little bit weird, and that is EDNS client subnet. Because, you see, when the stub asks the recursive a question, the stub says, well, okay, this is my address. It's the source address of this query. You, recursive resolver, know where I am, don't you? Yeah, to a very fine degree. To a very, very fine degree. But when the stub asks the authoritative server, it's the stub that's asking, not the client. So now it knows where the stub is, not me. Exactly. So let's say you're using, I don't know, Google's public DNS, because almost everyone does who uses an open resolver. Google's public DNS goes, hi, authoritative server, I'm Google. Answer this question. And then the content distribution network kind of goes, but where are you, Google? And Google goes, well, you know, everywhere. I'm everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't help. doesn't help me one little bit. I'm everywhere. And, And so what we do now is we attach not the IP address of the querier. I think everyone's prepared to concede that's a little bit too much detail. But we attach the source subnet the slash 24 in v4'd world, the slash 32 in a v6 world, that says, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I'm going to tell you enough that if you have a decent subnet to geographic location database, you'll know which city I'm in. It will tell the difference between Tokyo and Osaka. It will tell the difference between New York and Philadelphia. It knows to that level. So we're actually now at a point where the local, because I I was kind of going with, okay, local means on the same continent, but you're saying we can push further. Local could be in your city, and there might be another one in the city 200 k's away. Yes, local really does mean incredibly local. And, And that degree of content steering, which was only normally accessible via routing, is now sitting inside the DNS. And with, as I said, a decent geolocation database, and, you know, there are a whole bunch of them around. These days I'm using IP info. It will give you cities really well. And you can make these subtle distinctions about where things are. Now, the price is privacy. Mm. And I knew there had to be a cost somewhere along the way. Oh, God, there is. And if you want the DNS to be a really good content steering service, to tell the difference between, you know, upper and lower versions of, of, you know, suburbs in in certain cities, then you need to betray a huge amount of information. And and the RFC that describes this, EDNS client subnet, RFC 7871, has this phenomenal, phenomenal sort of preamble. We recommend that this feature be turned off by default in all named server software. Do not use this. This is the privacy leak from hell. But Jeff, everybody's doing it. And I kind of wonder, you know, George, and I kind of wonder what's the purpose? 
Because if it's really only to locate the client, why don't we use airport codes? Mm-hmm. Why don't we use lat long? Why don't we use a V6 address? God, there's 128 bits there. And encode every country code. That's only two letters. You know, that's only about 16 bits no matter what. And, and encode an airport code. That's only three letters. And just send it as a V6 pseudo address, an address that isn't routed, but is in essence a location tag that tells you where the client is without saying who it's attached to, what they, you know, without actually giving away information about the client other than if they went to the closest airport, it'd be this one and not that one. So there's kind of two things in my mind here. One is that when I actually come up to talking to the machine that's supplying this video feed, I'm actually going to give out an awful lot of information to it my client ID, my contract status, the quality of the video, my browser identity string. So between me and the person I ultimately talk to, I probably don't have a lot of privacy. We are really talking about privacy from intermediaries along the way to starting to use the service. That's the first thing. And the second thing is you mentioned earlier about this idea of overloading addresses, making addresses. I think that might have been in another conversation we had, but the idea that addresses aren't pure but carry information, and you're making an observation here, maybe we should stop using source address to try and convey extra information and carry that information in a quality all of its own. Why don't, yeah, why don't we lift out all of the privacy craft associated with addresses? And there is a lot of privacy considerations you know, a whole bunch of, of regulatory areas are now saying that IP addresses are personally identifying information and should be handled with the same degree of sensitivity as, you know, your passport number or your, your driver's licence number. Wow. And I can see the concern. That's, that's a reversal. That's a huge reversal from a prior posture that said IPs were not PII. Right. I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm saying that is a massive flip. It's been a learning experience, and the learning experience has been, you know, eye-opening for many that – any exposure of private information is a problem. So if you just want to expose a location and, and to give you the best service I can, I need to know some aspects of your location, but I don't necessarily need to know your IP address or even your subnet. I just need to know roughly where you are. So mm. why don't I tell you that by using another coding system like airport codes, like some other commonly known location formula that has nothing to do with the IP address that you might be using. You wouldn't even have to alter the DNS protocol to do this because what we're talking about is the bitmap value that you pass in the eDNS client subnet field. You're basically saying there doesn't have to be a one-to-one relationship between that value and your actual source address. In any case, the question's being asked by your resolver upstream. It's not you. So at one level, this could just be a handy map of airport codes mapped into something like V6 addresses. Exactly. And it kind of is a more generic way of handling over precisely the information you need to hand over and nothing else. I rather like that, Jeff. It's rather neat. And a number of folk are playing with it. I've seen a number of folk exploring this of what they call fuzzed subnet information. That's why I like airport codes. They're just not even a subnet. 
This is not an address, but it conveys location at the level of accuracy you need that makes a decent DNS service a very good one. Blimey, so I've got Brisbane International and Acacia Ridge, and Acacia Ridge Airport is closer to me than Brisbane and has an airport code. I could even get service closer than Brisbane Airport. <laughs> and it might be advantageous. It Absolutely. Might. But you I know, also not- might I might choose to say, actually, no, I'd rather tell people I'm in Sydney for some purposes and use a Sydney airport code for whatever reason. Your choice, and, and, and so it should be. So you haven't exactly said in this conversation that IP routing, classic IP routing in BGP goes away. You're saying that in terms of relative importance to me as a consumer, the aspect of packet forwarding that matters to me is selection of the best near me contextually. Well, let's think about your local last hop, your access service provider. And typically these days, access service providers are indeed local. They're not even national. They're quite constrained in in the geographies in which they operate. Now, Australia is a little bit odd that there are national providers, but, you know, on the whole, they're very, very local. And from a routing perspective, these networks aren't glued together using eBGP. It's just one internal mesh. Those access providers don't want to be held at a distance from content. They want content to be beside them. Inside them, possibly. Well, possibly, but beside no matter what. Depends on the financial model of settlement, oddly enough, whether it's inside or B-side. But either way, from content platform, from CDN, Content Delivery Network, to Access Network is, oddly enough, not a transit route anymore. You're saying that the entire dialogue between me and the content after DNS determines that it's close to me is routing free? For 90% of the traffic that gets delivered to users, it's routing free. Because the ISP wants to get close to the data center and the data center wants to get close to the users because, you know, distance is a problem. And so everyone's trying to cozy up to everyone else And this whole issue of, well, there are intermediaries on the path in the middle, it's a routing problem, is being wiped out. And for most of the traffic to most of the population centres on the planet, what we're now finding is that routing doesn't matter. Now, in some cases, they might fold it all the way in. You might recall an interview with one of the chief engineers at Reliance Geo in India that when they're rolling out their V6 access network with a little bit of V4 just for good measure, their real battle was to get content inside their network, inside, so the delivery to, to the end user was optimised. They didn't want to haul traffic around the world to get to their customers. They have too many customers. Well, also, given, given that there are V6 transport with V4 overlay and CGNs, having the content inside meant they could deliver the content over V6 Pure. Bloody good reasons. Really good reasons. So not a routing problem. And you look at any other place that's kind of well-developed and high population, the content folk want to get close to users. They're motivated to get right up there and cosy with them because better service, better delivery, you know, it actually is a better experience of the service. The access networks with customers want to get close to the content because better service. 
And so the two are kind of running towards each other at a phenomenal speed. And, and, and the casualty is transit. The casualty is routing. But routing doesn't exist as a sort of good in itself. I mean, it is a public good. It's a utility function, but its purpose is to enable us as holders of IP address things to talk to each other. So at one level, you're saying its relative importance is changing. Well, routing was used for two purposes. Routing was raw connectivity and traffic engineering. And, and never, never forget traffic steering, because why do we advertise more specifics? Why is half of the network's routing actually advertisements of more specifics? It doesn't aid reachability. It just tailors the way you get from A to B. And so routing had this huge element, and still does, of traffic steering. But I would argue that's an anachronistic and an anachronism in today's world. Because you can achieve probably a better outcome using DNS-based steering and content distribution network steering to achieve the goal. Well, I'd actually go it's way beyond hypothetical. It's what we do. You know, it's gone beyond that. So doesn't this mean, arguably, that we should expect to see less complexity in BGP routing, not more? That we should actually see a retreat from all of this changing complex routing and go back to a much more simplistic aggregate announcement world? Um, the telephone industry as a real-time virtual circuit switch had about a 20-year afterlife when they didn't realise they weren't needed anymore. <laughs> we were doing it all on IP. They still ran their time switches. They, you know, It took some time to realise that no one relied on it anymore. It was over. And I suspect the routing world is now in the dimming twilights of its utility role. Yeah. We run it because we like to run it, not because we have to run it. Because the rest of the service world is going, you know, no. I'm going to distribute my content so close to users that it's no longer a routing problem. And you go, well, what about inside those content distribution networks? What technology do they use? And I go, that's their problem. They're probably doing routing, Jeff, but it's not routing as we well, discuss it. Whatever Google or Akamai or Facebook or Fastly do is their problem, not my problem. It's, it's a private problem. And yeah. whatever technology they want to use is fine by me. And, and, you know, that's okay. But the public network now doesn't rely on routing to steer traffic. Traffic steering is now done by the DNS. So the entire control of traffic flow is under the control of DNS resolution. And so now what we're seeing is a new set of resource records in the DNS, these so-called SVC B records, service records, that actually preload the DNS with a set of rules about how to steer traffic. And I, I think that's going to absorb our attention for many years to come as we get better and better at this role as we get better and better at actually using a very different provisioning scheme on how to actually steer traffic on the internet. This is, I think, a bigger evolution than we had guessed. Yes. This, this sounds a bit scary, Jeff. This sounds like quite a significant change in the relativity of 
points of change, points of influence in how networks work. I've always thought of the internet as a three-legged stool, unique addresses, a path to find them, and a mapping from names. And you've kind of successively over the years managed to knock out the legs. The unique addresses part, well, CGNs got rid of that. We don't have unique addresses anymore. And today you've just said routing is really not the leg you think it is. It's a one-legged stool. It's the DNS. Right. And in terms of the ISO seven-layer protocol model, we've actually managed to rip out the bottom layers. It was actually a a gentleman by the name of Peter Thiel who, who came out with this weird quote, competition is for losers. It was the thesis of the new world order of the application-centric internet, the world of the app. What you can't dominate, you commoditize. And so what we're doing is sucking functionality up into the application world, up into content, up into service. All the money, all the investment, all all the buzz is actually up at layer seven, up at the application layer. And in so doing, we've commoditized all of those lower layers. We've commoditized the addressing layer, commoditized the routing layer. We've commoditized a huge amount of networking because in the public network, it's just data center, access network, user. And with end-to-end encryption, like Quick, mm-hmm. and with end-to-end sort of transport embedded in Quick, then what you actually find is, well, it's just applications, isn't it? Well, what about everything else? Well, they don't matter. They just don't matter anymore. We must secure the routing system. Okay, well, fine, <laughs> amuse yourself. Won't make an ounce of difference because at the application layer, I'm doing my own job. I'm authenticating server to client, client to server. I'm actually safeguarding the entire transaction inside my own application space. I am subsuming traffic steering into the DNS and I'm doing the DNS over, guess what, over Quick or HTTP3. In fact, I'm probably doing it over HTTP3. I don't need anyone else anymore. So I, I was going to say, I was going to say that I had fears this was, a, if not a tragedy of the commons, it was an erosion of public utility function because to me that's what routing is. It's the public utility component of gluing an internet together. But what you've said doesn't actually sound like there's a loss of control. It's just shifted where the aspects of control and operationalization take place. They've moved from routing into management of CDNs and names, but it's still potentially a contestable space and it's still potentially a utility function and it still actually is kind of maximizing to benefit measured as speed and locality. It's not all bad, is it, Jeff? It's just changing who has more authority in the environment. So if you count autonomous system numbers, there are about 80,000 separate networks that make up the internet. It's quite a big community of folk who who route. So who's in control? Oh, the tier ones maybe, but not really. There's a lot of folk who play. It's a big space. It's a big community. It's hard to assert that any single entity is in control. But let's go to content data networks for a second and actually have a look at who runs these massive platforms. Google has one. Facebook, Meta has one. Uh, Windows has one. Microsoft. Akamai. Uh, Fastly. Cloudflare. 
Yeah. We reached the bottom of the barrel yet? Well, there's probably an Alibaba version of this story out there, and I'd imagine there's a number of other semi-regional specific. Oh, no, we near 80,000. No, we're not looking at 80,000. We're looking at under 20, aren't we? A handful. So in some ways, it's it's a bleaker story of centralisation because at the application level, while there might be a myriad of services and apps, the vehicles they are forced to use these global content distribution networks. It's actually a very small set. And they're now assuming complete control over the entire protocol space. They're not reliant on someone else's routing. They're not even reliant on someone else's DNS. They're not reliant on other people's infrastructure. They're now assuming and sucking control up into that application level and doing everything in the user space in the application world. So decisions like whether my protocol is offered over Quick or over HTTP2 or even as bare HTTP has kind of moved to a different place now. It's likely that this is now an aggregated decision made at scale by my choice of CDN relationship. Right, and, and as application to application, your Quick may not be my Quick. There's no standard, really. It's all encrypted. And if my server is talking to my app over Quick, the rest of the world just sees encrypted UDP, what flow control it uses, what standards it adheres to. It may or may not be the IETF standard Quick. It doesn't matter. Because interoperability at that level has an entirely new meaning in the application space because each application doesn't have to interoperate with any other application. It just has to interoperate with its server. This is a new fencing of the commons. Yes. This is a new form of privatization and technical barrier that's being erected in, in plain view, in open sight. Because it's faster. It's faster. It gives more control to the folks spending the money. It reduces interdependencies and externalities and gives control to each individual, each individual service provider, their money, their control. And so it matches a very selfish economic thesis, but at the same time, completely, and I mean completely, strips and degrades the public ethos of communications. We've subdivided it into a whole set of private encrypted conversations that are not part of any public space. And to my mind, the internet is poorer thereby. Public communications is poorer thereby. Technically, this is an amazing achievement. The DNS is the new steering protocol. But at the same point, the price we're paying is actually a complete erosion of the model of a public communication space that enriches society. And that's Mm. kind of depressing. That is extremely depressing, Jeff. There's a lot to unpack in that. I'm afraid so. And I'm sure the motives of the folk who are pushing this forward might be pure of heart at some point. They just wanted it to go faster. But in so doing, they kind of touched upon some levers that said, I have more control if I do it myself. But the the flip side of that is you're not allowing anyone else to play with you, are are you? And the answer is, well, no, I don't want to be dependent. Competition is for losers. I don't want interdependencies. I want control. And, And that's the path we're going down inexorably and I think quite sadly. 
Well, this is a story we're going to have to keep an eye on as the years go forward. I really wonder if we will regret this outcome. Something to think about. Well, there's actually a research group that meets at IETF meetings, and I'll, I'll, call, it, I'll call its praises in these final minutes here. It's um, the Decentralised Internet Research Group, DINRG. And you kind of go, well, what's going on here? And the answer was centrality or the accumulation of function was never the internet's agenda. This was a big, decentralised, no-one's-in-charge, creative, anarchic space. Yet somehow we've managed to create almost the antithesis of that. Huge behemoths rule the middle and no one else can play. Can we contemplate what steps are required to decentralise it again? Where do we go wrong? Mm. How can we make it different? And those kind of conversations are the conversations that I think are conversations of our time, conversations that are necessary in the public interest. And where are they? Well, I point to the decentralised internet research group, the NRG, saying, have a listen to their videos of, of, you know, their meetings at IETF. Have a read of some of the presentations. Think about it a bit. And if you're really concerned, then maybe join up with them and post to them and be part of that conversation. Because if we don't do something now, it's all over. Yeah, it's just all stuffed. Fascinating, Jeff. And on that cheery note, George. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well done. Well, thank you for that, Jeff. I think we're going to have to think long and hard about this. I'll post, I'll make sure that a link to the DINRG group is posted on the blog entry that goes with this. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, George. Thanks, listeners. Cheers. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.